Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 26th of October, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Debbie Evans. Uh, we'll get straight on with uh, our new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and the question is, uh, what is his agenda? Well, let's find out. I understand how difficult this moment is. After the billions of pounds it cost us to combat COVID, after all the dislocation that caused, in the midst of a terrible war that must be seen successfully to its conclusions. So no change there then. We are at war. We are at war. He's obviously quite happy we're at war. And as far as he's concerned, we've got to win that war, whatever the cost. Indeed. Uh, well, of course, then the question is who was going to be in his cabinet? And well, perhaps Matt Hancock was hoping for the job. But unfortunately, well, he got completely blanked. This was so funny. And uh, he was very disappointed, clearly. So his face face change there. It's quite remarkable that clip. Yeah. yeah. So who's uh, who is in? Well, James Cleverly stays as uh, Foreign Secretary, and Ben Wallace stays Defence Secretary. So the war agenda absolutely uh, straight up. Uh, Michelle Donlan remains as Digital Culture, Media, and Sport, uh, and therefore she will be pushing through the online safety bill. Uh, Swala Braverman, who kicked off the whole charade with uh, Liz Truss being kicked out of her job. Uh, has been put back in the Home Office. And so, of course, she will be in charge of pushing through the Public Order Bill. Uh, we have Steve Barclay, uh, Secretary of State for Health, Therese Coffey. Well, clearly, she wasn't healthy enough to be Secretary of State of Health, so she's become Secretary of State for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. It looks like a much more appropriate position for her. Uh, Michael Gove is back, uh, and uh, he's going to be levelling up Housing and Communities Minister and Minister for Intergovernmental Relations. I didn't know what that was, but apparently that's uh, Westminster, uh, Holyrood and Welsh government and so on, relations between the various devolved uh, governments. Uh, and uh, Gillian Keegan, don't know very much about her at all, but she's going to be Secretary of State for Education. I'm sure that things will change in schools immediately. Well, maybe not, but no. uh, she'll, she should be the target, of course, for parents who are unhappy with the religious and sexual education syllabus and we'll mention that a little bit later uh, and of course jeremy hunt stays as chancellor so he said it's extremely important that statement that his uh, financial statement is based on the most accurate possible economic forecasts and forecasts of public finances uh, for that reason the prime minister and i have decided that it is prudent uh, i'm not sure who said that in the past prudent to make uh, that statement on the 17th of november because it was intended to be the 31st of october uh, 17th of November, when it will be upgraded to a full autumn statement. I've discussed this last night with the Governor of the Bank of England. So there we go. Does that mean it's also been discussed with the Bank of International Settlements? Because, of course, the public in UK does not have the right to know what is discussed between the Bank of England and the Bank of International Bank for International Settlements. Indeed. So uh, then following the appointment of various people uh, and the sacking of various people, Rishi made his traditional phone calls. And who was the first phone call, Brian? Can we guess? Um, I think I think it will be our, our leader, our Zed. Leader. Yeah, Zed, Zed. indeed. Uh, he phones Zelensky straight away. Uh, I see this is the official photograph of him phoning Zelensky, and he has lots of notes there. He needs a script, perhaps? Well, I'm sure he does, because, of course, he's only going to say to Zelensky what the deep state wants Rishi Sunak to say to him. But uh, 
it's clear we're at war and the priority is Ukraine. Billions per month going to go into Ukraine, more weapons. So no proper discussion in Westminster and the British public have just got to accept it because we're told that this is the situation. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and then he spoke to Biden um, because that's what you do. That's the next person on the list. And he's smiling when he speaks to Biden. So perhaps Biden got his name right this time. Yeah, recognized him. Yes. Uh, but anyway, the, the agenda continues. And here we go. Uh, 17th of October, 2022. Uh, we've got Russia and Iran unite to spread terror. This is what the... Uh, uh, Ministry of Defense is pushing out today. So let's see what they're saying. Russia is destroying Ukrainian homes with combat drones supplied by Iran. Iran is not, uh, has not, and will not provide any weapon to be used in the Ukraine war, say the Russians, the Iranians, sorry, and the Russians saying, uh, you know, it's Russian equipment with Russian nomenclature being used, but they're really pushing this as hard as they can, that Iran is supplying weapons to Russia and therefore Iran plus Russia are terrorist states. And this narrative, I think, is particularly dangerous. Yeah, and it's also incredibly hypocritical because this is the sort of stuff the West has been doing and NATO's been doing for, for years. What they're really frightened about is that Iran is now demonstrating it's got the technology and the capability to build this sort of equipment to such a standard that um, it can be used. Yes. So, so it's it's uh, fear here that uh, we we've got other countries daring to stand up and say we don't have to adhere to the rules that come out of the West and NATO. Um, so on Monday we were talking about the Russian allegations that the Ukraine was planning to use a dirty bomb, and Britain's uh, absolute claims that that was not the case. Uh, Russia is uh, doubling down on this, in fact. And here's Lieutenant General Igor Kurilov, uh, and this is what he had to say. According to the official information, uh, two organizations of Ukraine have been directly ordered to create the so-called dirty bomb. Uh, the works are at their concluding stage. Uh, moreover, we have information about contacts between the Office of the President of Ukraine and representatives of the United Kingdom regarding the possible reception of technologies to create nuclear weapons. So this is now a direct allegation against the UK in particular. Uh, the Kiev regime plans to camouflage the explosion of this kind of ordnance under an extraordinary effect of Russian low-power nuclear warhead that contains, this is a bad translation perhaps, but contains highly enriched uranium in its charge. Uh, the presence of radioactive isotopes in the air will be recorded by the sensors of the international monitoring system installed in Europe with further accusation of the Russian Federation using tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, and he said that using the same myth methods employed in Kanshikun, Syria, in April 2017, as a pretext, the Americans launched uh, that missile strike at the uh, Sharat uh, airbase. So he's highlighting the fact that this same uh, methodology has been used by the West before uh, without waiting for an investigation to begin uh, and all the more a decision of the UN Security Council grossly violating international law. So to summarize, he says Ukraine has has got a motive to use a dirty bomb as well as scientific, technical and production capabilities to create it. Uh, and he said that uh, Ukraine expects a, a dirty bomb provocation to intimidate the population, increase the flow of refugees and accuse the Russian Federation of nuclear terrorism. Um, I think that if if those accusations are true, that's uh, really you know something that uh, the UK needs to address. 
Uh, of course, my, but I, I don't think that the Russians are making this up. I've, I, I'm pretty sure that they got to the point where they knew they had to speak out on it. Otherwise, they are going to be on the receiving end of this sort of uh, subversion by, by the West. So they're calling it out up front, and this is going to put huge pressure on the US and the UK in particular um, to uh, come clean. Yeah. But of course, we're not going to do that because everything that we've done in this war to date is dirty and uh, basically hidden in the shadows where whether if you know whether it's the support of special forces or it's the types of weapons going in or it's the surveillance units that are recording all of the uh, signals intelligence, which is a huge uh, support for the Ukrainians. But most of it, we're denying that we're actually doing these things. Um, well, in the meantime, there seems to be a bit of a break politically uh, going on. So in the United States, uh, this letter has been sent to the president uh, from 30 members of Congress. And they're saying, we write with appreciation of your commitment to Ukraine's legitimate struggle against uh, Russia's war of aggression. So the same kind of rhetoric is in the letter. But here's the key point. Uh, in conclusion, we urge you to make vigorous diplomatic efforts in support of a negotiated settlement and ceasefire, engage in direct talks with Russia, explore prospects for a new European security arrangement acceptable to all parties that will allow for a sovereign and independent Ukraine and in coordination with our Ukrainian partners, seek a rapid end to the conflict and reiterate this goal as America's chief priority. So that's 30 members of d democratic members of the Congress as well. Uh, have signed that. And in the meantime, in Germany, uh, not only this, uh, this is uh, Michael uh, Kretschmer, who is uh, the, uh, we might call him Prime Minister of Saxon. Uh, and he's basically saying in this article in Bild, uh, now we need a joint diplomatic effort by the EU, USA, China, India and Japan. This war must be stopped. Again, he's using the usual rhetoric. There's not a single reason why Ukraine should give up even one square meter of its territory, war damage must be compensated by Russia, war criminals must be held accountable. But he then goes on to say, uh, you have to go into peace talks with this attitude. We must no longer resolve these issues on the battlefield. Europe needs to put more pressure on peace talks. Um, and so uh, there are other German politicians speaking out on this and calling on uh, Baerbach uh, to uh, actually <laughs> force negotiations. Yeah, and, and I think this is coming, Mike, because of course the West knows full well now that the, the Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure and the last reports that I've seen is that they're talking now between 30 and 40 percent of Ukraine's electricity generating capacity has been destroyed. That is only going to increase. So very shortly, of course, Ukraine will cease to be able to function as a proper country. And it's only the billions of dollars that are being pumped in every month, principally by the Americans that are keeping Ukraine functioning at all. So um, the, uh, the Russians are not going to go away. They have successfully uh, repulsed Ukrainian tax, particularly in the Kherson area. And uh, they have now dug themselves in. So things are not looking promising in any way for Ukraine at the moment. OK, and then just to finish this segment off, uh, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, gas reserves in the UK and the fact that Britain is uh, reopening the rough gas storage facility. And actually, we were highlighting the fact that uh, there are many technical reasons why that is not quite what it seems. Um, so I was interested in, in this. Uh, th this is describing Europe's 
availability of stored gas for this coming winter. Uh, and if we look at the EU as a whole, um, we can see that uh, it has 1,000 terawatt hours of gas in storage, but has a requirement uh, of 3,776, an annual requirement of 3,776 terawatt hours of gas. So what's that, about three and a half months worth, Brian, of uh, storage available to it. But if we look at the United Kingdom, uh, brackets post-Brexit on this, um, we see that we have 10 terawatt hours of gas in storage uh, and a requirement of 769 terawatt hours per year of gas. Um, so again, we find that the UK is in a position of, uh, in the worst position on the planet, really, in terms of its ability to cope with any kind of market shocks or any kind of break in supply. Um, and so maybe this is something that people should be engaging their political representatives about. Yeah, and, and following the, uh, the trail back to the beginning, of course, that all this mayhem was unleashed the moment uh, the Ukrainian war was fermented and uh, Russia uh, backed into a corner. So it all comes back to the initial politics around Ukraine and the fact that a revolution was fermented there, followed up now by warfare on the ground. We're apparently at war, according to the Prime Minister and um, according to Ben Wallace in what he says. Um, now we're beginning to suffer as a result. But of course, the cracks are appearing in, uh, in the European Union because countries are now saying our economies are being taken apart, Germany being the lead. Yes. Okay, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You could pick something up uh, at the UK column shop, but please do share uh, material you find on the various platforms. Okay, well, we just wanted to remind people that a group of mums have been doing really sterling work to try and protect children uh, from what is essentially vile sexual grooming within the government's religious and sexual education syllabus. Um, they are working very hard to bring, bring the government to account on this, and uh, that is being done through the courts. Um, this requires money, and uh, we think this is a particularly good cause because a relatively small number of these ladies are now having a, a very powerful effect. Uh, they're doing things properly. They are engaging legal help um, for their battle against the government's attack on the minds of young children, uh, but they do need help funding this. So if you have a look at this fundraiser page, uh, we will encourage our audience to at least contribute something because standing up to be counted in this way deserves support. I'd also just like to thank um, the UK column audience for the very positive response we've had to the interview that I did with Sandy Adams on the subject of Agenda 2030. Uh, we've done parts one and part two, um, but uh, many people picked up on the fact that Sandy said she'd had great difficulty getting hold of a copy of the original Global Biodiversity Assessment. This was the 1100-page document which really began to spell out the whole agenda. And many people have emailed us to say, well, it is available. Uh, there are several links, but I've chosen the one which is on screen. So if you freeze the screen, the web address will take you to a downloadable copy of that agenda. Uh, well, it's the Global Biodiversity Assessment, 
But of course, this Sandy Adams has been saying is the base document uh, for the rise of Agenda 2030. So a big thank you to all the UK column viewers. And uh, if you want to read that document for yourself, there's the uh, link on screen. Uh, where does this take us? Uh, Debbie, uh, yeah. so try, try, try again, but remember what happened last time. Uh, yes, um, as we all know, Steve Barclay has now been appointed as health secretary. And I just want to remind people that a health secretary's responsibilities, they include financial control of NHS delivery, overseeing social care policies, responsibility for mental health and championing patient safety. So it's a big responsibility. And we can see that Steve Barclay has been in the position of, of health secretary before. And he didn't come off very well um, because a member of the public confronted him about all sorts of ambulance delays and uh, he was completely out of his depth. And I just want to remind people who we have now at the, at the, at the top of our, our, our health um, service. So Steve Barclay is actually a solicitor, which doesn't really bode well, does it? But he started out um, where I might be interested in the Fusiliers. He's Sandhurst. Um, he's been a health minister a number of times, uh, neither time very successfully, because I, I personally don't really remember him in the post. Yeah. Um, he's been a, a government whip. But before his political days, and I think this is what's really interesting, is that the clues in the name, he used to work for AXA Insurance. That raises a few alarm bells to me. He was also director of regulatory affairs and headed the anti-money laundering and sanctions department at Barclays Bank. So I'm not quite sure where Therese Coffey's ABCD um, is going to go, but I'm a bit worried that with public spending cuts imminent, the NHS cannot afford to lose any more money. Mm. Yeah, but we've also got a little bit of the revolving door of people going through the banking industry and then into the political jobs. And of course, Rishi Sunak is, is one of the same. So it's getting very hard to tell where allegiances lie. Do they lie to the NHS in this example or the public or do we have people who actually are more interested in how big money is managed through the, through the world. Uh, but Debbie let's move on to the NHS itself and the chaos around it. Is Steve Barclay going to fix it? No um, I don't see how he can possibly fix it. The NHS is in an absolute mess and um, <laughs> Jeremy Hunt has already been ordered by the BMA to include the NHS big time and not to make any cuts in his fiscal statement, which we know, of course, now has been delayed. So everything's up in the air. But interestingly, you'll see there on the right hand side, Amanda Pritchard, who's the CEO of NHS England, was in a closed meeting and was overheard as um, saying that the financial crisis is an effing nightmare. And she warned that soaring inflation is going to cost the health service an extra seven billion next year. Well, I can't see um, that happening, to be quite honest. Uh, there's going to be obviously cuts in public spending. Um, the NHS is falling apart. Staff are leaving in their droves. There's a huge recruitment campaign going on now within the NHS. And you can see there that they're launching a recruitment drive for tens of thousands of nurses and record staff vacancies. And they're pretty much recruiting for everyone and anyone. Um, 
we've got 40,000 nurses that have just left or just leaving the NHS now. Um, we've got a recruitment drive that's going on at the moment, like big time. They are desperate, literally desperate for, for staff. We've got staff shortages everywhere, ambulance staff, nursing staff, porters, you name it, 999 staff, absolutely everything. And then on top of that, we've got strikes looming within the NHS. So we've got pretty much everybody within the NHS is threatening to strike nurses, doctors, consultants, ambulance um, workers. I mean, it's just, I, I can't begin to, to describe the chaos. There you can see, see we've got NHS consultants walking out. Um, and the NHS this winter we know is going to be overwhelmed so we can only we can only be assured that getting any kind of treatment this winter or searching for treatment should you need it or want it is going to be impossible but meanwhile while all of that's going on we can see that the NHS hospital trusts are paying hundreds of millions of pounds in interest to private firms um, they spent 2.3 billion on legacy PFI projects in 2021, of which just under 1 billion went on costs for essential services such as cleaning and maintenance. I mean, this is, this is absolutely, I've got no words, you know, clearly we can see that the NHS, as we knew it, as a public service has gone, and by stealth, it's been privatised, gentlemen. And that's exactly what's happened to it. It's now private. Uh, well, it's not only private, Debbie, it's also virtual. And a little bit later in today's UK column news, we will just show our viewers and listeners what, what we're talking about there. It, is be, it has been made a virtual service provision. Um, well, in the meantime, another day and another uh, well-known personality passes away. Uh, this time, DJ Mighty Mouse dies in sleep in Spanish Villa, says the male music pro uh, producer suffered aortic aneurysm. Uh, we can make a guess at what may have caused that, but uh, another younger person uh, going that way. Um, and if we look at the latest uh, all-cause mortality st statistics from the Office for National Statistics, they're saying 11,699 deaths registered in England, Wales on the week ending 14th of October 2022. That was 15.9% above the five-year average. That's 1,608 excess deaths. So again, another week, more excess mortality and zero coverage in the mainstream press. The ONS went on to say that for the week end, ending 30th of March 2020 to the week ending 14th of October 2020, the number of excess deaths above the five-year average in England and Wales uh, was 156,232. Now, of course, uh, many of those deaths uh, being attributed to COVID. Uh, and we can have a whole discussion about, as we have done many times over the last couple of years, about the validity of that. Uh, the ONS went on to say the number of deaths was above the five-year average in England and Wales in private homes. Once again, the largest number of uh, excess deaths in private homes uh, at 26.8%, 14.3% in hospitals, 10% in care homes, and 5% in other settings. But this is not just a UK problem. And this is this is one of the interesting things, Debbie, because, of course, we've been talking about uh, the waiting times for ambulances, the, the fact that people are increasingly dying of uh, heart attacks and strokes and these types of things. And we also have been talking or at least asking the question, 
have a, has a lot of this excess mortality been coming because of the breakdown of the NHS. But the question then is, is that health service breakdown something which is happening Europe-wide? And if we put this on screen, uh, excess mortality Europe-wide is 16%, which is pretty much the same figure as uh, in 2022, pretty much the same figure as for the UK. And so unless Europe, European countries are experiencing the same breakdown of uh, health services that we have, uh, and we can have a conversation about that at some point as well. Uh, let's put on screen which countries are the worst. The ones in dark red are the worst. So Iceland, Ireland, uh, Spain, Portugal, Germany, Italy, uh, uh, and so on. We've got France uh, a, a little less, Norway a little less, and the least affected by this, uh, countries like Sweden uh, and so on. So uh, nonetheless, massive excess mortality right around Europe, De uh, Debbie, and so that... If, if, it, if it can't be attributed to, to health service breakdown because it's happening on a much broader basis than just the UK, where we know we have a health service breakdown, then something else must be the cause. Exactly. And could that cause possibly be uh, attributed to vaccine injury? Will we ever know that? Well, well, I don't think we will ever know that because that question is not being asked except by a, a very few voices. And until the question is asked more broadly, until people are willing to consider that possibility and investigate, we will never know. Well, we'll never know. And we can also give our audience uh, a little look into how things go when people do start to ask questions. Um, so let's just focus in on uh, this event, it was an e-petition which gave rise to a parliament, uh, to a debate uh, as, as a group of MPs, not a full parliamentary debate itself, uh, Monday the 24th of October. And we've, we've got three clips of the uh, live stream of that debate. Now, we have done a little bit of editing to keep them short. Um, so some things have been brought together, um, but this gives our audience and overviews to what take place or what took place. So let's have a look at the opening, and uh, this is in one clip, and then we'll have a little bit of discussion. The proceeding will start shortly. This has considered e-petition 602171 relating to the safety of the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, on behalf of the Petitions Committee, I will read out the prayer of this petition, which states that there has been a significant increase in heart attacks and related health issues since the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines. This needs immediate and full scientific investigation to establish if there's any possible link with the COVID-19 vaccination rollout. It is the duty of government to ensure that the prescribed medical interventions of its response to coronavirus are safe. We believe that the recent and increasing volume of data relating to cardiovascular problems since the COVID-19 vaccine rollout began is enough to warrant a full public inquiry. This petition has amassed over 107,000 signatures, including signatories from my own Carshall and a Wallington constituency. And I'd like to first begin by putting on record my gratitude to the petitions committee clerks and the team behind the scenes for organising today's debate but also particularly the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, or MHRA, who met with me recently to brief me on their vaccine safety surveillance strategy. Now, Sir Roger, throughout the course of my speech, I'll be pointing out why I do not think that the government should be launching a public inquiry into vaccine safety. I think it would be a waste of taxpayers' money. Is, I will give, gladly give way. I'm, I'm very grateful to my honourable friend. 
He's obviously done a lot of preparation for this debate. Can I ask him whether part of that preparation includes having looked at the Oracle films Safe and Effective, A Second Opinion, which was uh, uh, produced about a month ago and has already had what, more than one million views online and most people think is highly persuasive? I'm grateful to my Honourable Friend for that intervention. I've not uh, seen the publication he mentions. I have read a lot of the significant amounts of material that have been shoved through my constituency office door by a large number of anti-vax protesters in my own constituency who have fly-posted my office on no less than a dozen occasions, intimidating my 18-year-old apprentice and the people who live above my constituency office. Uh, and considering the content of that literature includes climate change denial, moon landing denial, etc., etc., I'm inclined to ignore their content completely. So uh, I know what my thoughts were when I heard that uh, outburst by that uh, gentleman. Debbie, over to you. What did you make of his response to uh, Sir Christopher Chope um, interjecting there? Uh, well, you probably can see the smoke coming out of, of my head. I mean, uh, who is this man? You know, let's look at it. He's prepared, well prepared. I don't think so. He hadn't obviously seen the film. He doesn't appear to have spoken to the vaccine injured. And yet he's had a meeting with the MHRA. Well, I would really love to know when that meeting took place and why Sir Christopher Chope wasn't invited to it. I was absolutely horrified. But just very quickly... I just want to let people know, I've done a little bit of homework on Elliot Gould and um, having worked in the Department of Health myself as a government advisor, I saw the way these little parliamentary assistants were running around ministers. Um, um, sort of, it, it, was all a, it was all a little bit um, uncomfortable to watch. Um, they were very keen to be noticed. Elliot Gould was one of these parliamentary assistants and he was also involved in public affairs, which gets, gets me a little bit worried. Um, he's openly gay. He's a supporter of trans rights and an open supporter of trans rights. In fact, he's even on the APPG for the global LBGT rights and hate crime. So I'm very concerned that is he muddling up hate crime with information? Is he getting it muddled with conspiracy theories and misinformation because he seems to be so involved in hate crime? And a waste of taxpayers' money. Excuse me. I mean, and, and, and do you know what? One other thing, very quickly, the term anti-vaxxers, I really do have to object to this term, anti-vaxxers. It has been used far too broadly. There are plenty of people who are not anti-vaxxers and are vaccine, in inverted commas, cautious. So, um, yes, gentlemen, that, that I'm... I'm quite upset by that clip and it provoked quite a reaction, as you can probably tell. Well, I'm going to agree, Debbie. I think he's got an extremely muddled head. But of course, um, he's apparently had that discussion with the MHRA. That's fine. Let's see the minutes of the meeting. Let's see, let the public see what, what he discussed with the MHRA. That, of course, is all hidden for us. But what I thought was utterly shocking was effectively he calls Sir Christopher Chope a conspiracy theorist. That's what he does. He, and I'm surprised, I'm a little bit surprised that Sir Christopher Chope didn't pick him up on it because his response to a, a perfectly reasonable question about a very powerful video was so aggressive and dismissive. Well, let's, uh, let's just have a look at the uh, second 
part. So this is another clip that we've extracted from the full video of the events on that day. Um, the position of the MHRA remains that the benefits of COVID-19 vaccine continue to outweigh the risk, risks for most people. The surveillance strategy is working, as we've discussed. We're able to respond quickly to ensure safe administration of all COVID vaccines. And I would like to reiterate that the public should be very confident that all tests are completed to the very highest standards and that vaccines are safe. Mr Chairman, despite the progress that we have made, we must not become complacent. My, my honourable friend, the all-party parliamentary group for victims of vaccine damage, would you be willing to come and address that group um, in a private meeting so she can hear firsthand some of the concerns that members have got? I thank my honourable friend for the question. Um, he'll be aware of events today and I will have to um, at least see whether I remain <laughs> in post before committing, committing um, potentially somebody else to... Uh, such a decision. Um, Mr Chairman, despite the progress we've made, we haven't got to become complacent. We can't risk an increase in serious illness, hospitalisations and deaths from COVID. Um, the UK HSA estimated that even by the end of September 2021, vaccinations had averted up to 128,000 deaths and 262,000 hospitalisations, and there will be many more. The government has already commissioned a public inquiry into the pandemic and COVID vaccines will be reviewed as part of this inquiry. There are no plans for an inquiry solely on vaccine safety. Well, there we are. Um, I think I'm right in saying she's out of a job now. So she's been replaced, I think. She was Debbie, a junior minister, and I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure Debbie might know. Uh, no, I haven't heard who's replaced her. But what I would say is I would be very doubtful if she's um, got her job, because she actually was supporting the return of Boris Johnson as leader. Um, but very interestingly, I want people to know too who she is, because it's relevant. Dr. Caroline Jackson is a paediatrician, a consultant paediatrician. Um, and she's also chair of the APPG group on, um, uh, for children and palliative care. Uh, she works as a part-time consultant as well. So she has an additional salary on top of her MP salary of £20,000 for working 336 hours a week, uh, uh, and, and, sorry, not a week, a year within the NHS. So if she does lose the job, she can be assured that probably she can increase her hours within the NHS. Right, but she's got no worries at all because what was she doing? She was simply trotting out the government, the party line. Everything is safe. And really her reaction again to Christopher Choke when he made that perfectly reasonable offer, would you like to meet some of the people who've been vaccine injured? She, she essentially scoffed at it. Well, because and, uh, and, and indeed, she, okay, she may not be a uh, health minister anymore, but she's still an MP. She still could take an interest if she chose to. Yeah, but it's just dismissed out of hand. It's the arrogance. Debbie? Yeah, what I was going to say quickly was she'd also completely dismissed the fact that there was, I mean, it was like she was scripted from the MHRA. It was almost like an MHRA advertisement that she was reading out there. But what she was saying was that the, those with vaccine injuries would be rerouted into Baroness Hallett's COVID-19 inquiry. Well, I can tell you that the families that are already involved in module one in the COVID-19 inquiry are already unhappy because they're not being listened to they're not having their stories heard and they're being rerouted into a listening, um, a, a kind of another forum where they're listened to 
but their individual stories aren't taken into account. So this is a disaster waiting to happen in my, in my opinion. Okay, thank you for that. Well, let's go into clip three, the final of a uh, clip that we have, which says a lot. Thank you, Sir Roger. It's unusual that I'm in this place and I get lambasted by colleagues, but uh, I make no apologies, Sir Roger, for looking out for the health and well-being of my constituents. And I completely agree with the sentiments raised throughout the course of th this afternoon's debate that we do have to do more, and I do urge the Minister to look into more what we can do for those and, uh, who are adversely affected. But the thing that I will not apologise for is not allowing that to be a gateway to allowing vaccine misinformation to come in to, main, to the mainstream. Um, some people have said that this debate is overdue. Well, I hasten to remind colleagues in my opening remarks, there's been four of these petitions committee debates alone, let alone the backbench business debates and private colleagues um, that have come forward to um, uh, ask for debates. So there, this is not overdue. This has happened plenty of times. We've given a lot of parliamentary time to this. Um, yes, there is more that we can and must do for those that suffer harm. Um, but it is worth reiterating that the system for approving and monitoring vaccines is robust. The inquiry exists already. And vaccines are a great British success story. It was a Brit that discovered vaccines in the way that we know them today and that they have been effective in tackling a range of illnesses that would have previously been life-threatening or very dangerous indeed. The proof is that they work, that they, are save, that they are saving lives, and they protect yourself and others. So can I join the minister in urging people to come forward for their vaccines this winter, help protect themselves, help protect, another, help protect others, and help make sure that the strain on our NHS is as minimal as possible. I beg to move. Consider the petition 602171 relating to the safety of COVID-19 vaccines. As many of that have been say aye. Contrary, no. Order, order. So there we are. I, I just think absolute disgrace because, of course, that uh, MP not interested in people who've been injured at all. If he was, they would be there. They would be in front of that committee and he would be hearing what their problems were. So what has he done? He's apparently had a meeting with the MHRA. He believes everything the MHRA have said to him. He follows the government policy. And if you dare to stand up and say you've been injured by a vaccine, then you're a, a vile conspiracy theorist and probably very aggressive in his book. This, this man's got some serious cognitive problems, I think. It seems to me that he doesn't know what reality is anymore. Debbie, maybe I'm being a bit hard on him. No, I don't think you are at all, Brian. In fact, I think you're being very kind. Um, uh, my words would be, it would appear to me, He's giving out misinformation, disinformation, wrong information. Um, we do not have robust regulation, clearly. The MHRA is a shell organisation. Um, there's nothing with regards to safety going on behind it at all. It's surveillance. Um, the UK has never been top of the tree with regards to vaccines. We've never manufactured a vaccine um, at, at, at this level ever before. So clearly he's, he's wrong in that. Um, to say that the vaccines work, clearly <laughs> we know otherwise. So he is very, very, um, well, he's just not very well informed. But thanks to the wonderful Wayne, I would just like to say that there has been an email from Sir Christopher Chope's office this morning saying that there will be two more presentation bills with regards to the e-debate to be held on the 28th of October 
the 2nd of December. There has been no date for the next APPG yet, but they are hoping there will be another APPG before Christmas. So that's just come through from Wayne as we were on air. So thank you very much, Wayne. Can I just add, Brian, that, uh, you know, obviously you've been focusing on that, that one individual, but I mean, how many people were in that room? 20 out of 650 MPs. I yeah. think I think everybody that's watching this should be identifying the 20 that are in that room. And if their particular MP wasn't in that room, I think they should be asking why. That's true. But we, we also know that there are uh, there's, we think there was about 14 MPs in the room. We also know that there's at least 60 MPs, maybe more, that are showing an interest now in, in vaccine injuries. But many of them weren't at that particular event because they got such little notice that it was going to take place. And what I find interesting is this is exactly the type of diversion and stalling tactics that has been used in the past not only with other vaccine uh, other pharmaceutical injuries uh, like epilim, for example, but also when we've got into other areas like child abuse, uh, the date changed at short notice, the venue changes, MPs not given enough notice. And I believe that some of these techniques went on around this meeting. Debbie. Yeah, just also, I, my question would be, was where's Jeremy Hunt? I realise that he's very busy um, with numbers as Chancellor. However, he is the founder member of Patient Safety Watch and as an MP, and as he told me that he was extremely concerned about the serious adverse reactions from the COVID-19 injections, I would have expected either he to be there or for him to have sent a representative. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, we just put up this Sky headline from a couple of days ago because this is the situation, COVID-19 inquiry focusing, uh, sorry, COVID-19 inquiry focusing solely on the safety of vaccines will not be opened, the government says. And I would imagine that the vaccine manufacturers are feeling very happy about that. Yeah, and uh, they, they couldn't avoid putting the advert in. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, we just remind people that... Uh, Back in August, uh, we did an interview with Mark Sharman, who was talking in a very uh, detailed and moving way about vaccine injured people. And of course, he was referring to the, um, uh, the uh, video which um, Sir Christopher Choate mentioned in that debate. So if you want to have a listen to or watch this audio and there is a little inserted clip from the uh, video itself, we'd encourage you to do that. And I'll also remind uh, people that uh, UK Column did a really interesting interview with um, Sir Christopher Chope himself uh, a little while ago. He was principally at that stage focused on the need for compensation because people who had been damaged were then left unable to work and without incomes. But we know that uh, his interest is as uh, spread. And uh, we're also going to remind people that, of course, it's been the work of groups such as UKCV Family, uh, which has brought together many people who've been vaccine damaged. Uh, it's been their voice that's been uh, helping to promote wider interest and did, in fact, uh, help push this uh, meeting which has taken place. So we can see how vilely they're being treated. And uh, as with the mums in Wales fighting uh, for the minds of young children to protect them from the religious and sex education policy. UK CV family also needs income 
if they're to carry on their fight for justice for people who've been damaged by vaccines. Well, um, I'll just uh, move slightly sideways here, because if we wonder why part um, MPs are so blinkered in their views, we've got to come back to how things are put together. And uh, caught my attention on the petition page itself, that if you had a look underneath, uh, you come down to a little bit of information. So uh, there is this, read the House of Commons library research on this issue. And of course, this is exactly what MPs do and their own research assistants. They don't go out there to find the truth and the facts. What they do is they take the easy route through the House of Commons library. And if we go on to that library itself and have a look for matters to do with vaccination and COVID-19, uh, you will find that they have a lot of their so-called research papers listed. Uh, so here we've got everything from uh, Omicron and new coronavirus variants to COVID-19 vaccine passports, uh, but it goes on and on. Uh, so we've taken some more here, UK vaccination policy, COVID-19 vaccine rollout, future of COVID-19, immunising children against COVID-19. Uh, another page with more of these uh, so-called research papers until we finally get down to the uh, the end of that section. Um, but what we are supposed to believe here is that these are independent research papers and MPs should go here in order to find out what the truth is. Um, well, what are we talking about? We're talking about really this organisation, which is the research uh, system itself, bridging research and policy, which I find is an interesting little description. Um, and we shouldn't worry, Mike, because it says that Post produces impartial, non-partisan and peer-reviewed briefings designed to make scientific research accessible to the UK Parliament. So the MPs on their budgets and with their assistants and researchers can't find the truth themselves. They're directed into this little nest, I'm going to say, of vipers who are going to give them the supposed truth. Let's have a look at a little film to really understand what Post is about. The Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology, or POST, bridges research and policy and is one of the longest-running legislative science advice mechanisms in the world. We provide parliamentarians with up-to-date research evidence and expertise to inform legislation and scrutiny. Our work is forward-thinking, impactful, and is the product of over 30 years of review and development. It all started in 1985, when a group of parliamentarians visited the USA to see the first example of parliamentary technology assessment in the world, the OTA. Inspired by the OTA, in 1988, parliamentarians and members of the science and technology community started a charity to fundraise for the UK Parliament's very own office. Within just one year, the charity raised about £100,000 to set up an external science advice office called POST and began recruiting the office's first director. But it was born with a very modest budget and so staff were only employed on temporary contracts. POST's continued fundraising allowed the team to grow and the first three POST sections were born. Biology and Health, Energy and Environment and Physical Sciences and ICT. 
Funding was not always certain, but in 1992, after a review, parliamentarians decided by one vote to fund posts for three years, bringing the office into Parliament. A second review in 1995 secured funding for a further five years. At this time, PhD students started to come to post to do fellowships, post fellows write briefings or assist select committees or libraries. For more than 20 years, POST has trained the next generation of policy-wise academics and Parliament has benefited from greater access to research evidence. In 2000, POST was reviewed for a third time. The POST Board successfully advocated for the office to become a permanent feature of the UK Parliament and with additional funds from Parliament, POST almost doubled in size. In 2013, POST secured funding from the Economic and Social Research Council to allow the creation of a fourth section, the Social Sciences section was born. In 2018, with continued funding from the ESRC, POST created the Knowledge Exchange Unit, a team coordinating and strengthening the flow of information and expertise between UK Parliament and the academic community. Over the years, post work has had significant and varied impacts in Parliament, including informing debates, committee inquiries, and the passing of legislation. Post impacts have felt beyond Parliament, in wider society, where its work is used in the justice system, the academic community, the media, and even inspires other nations. The Post Board started Post Journey in 1985 helped to secure funding and recognition, and has shaped an extensive portfolio of research evidence support that parliamentarians can draw upon today. To find out more about how POST bridges research and policy, go to post.parliament.uk. Well, there we are. It didn't take long for UK column viewers to pick up on the fact that they were being talked to as if they were three or four year olds. Uh, and of course, this is part of the uh, grooming by the government itself, that if you're a member of the public, you are to be treated as a child. Uh, but Debbie, what was uh, interesting for me there is somebody comes up with £100,000. They don't talk about who that individual organisation was. They set themselves up to their entire satisfaction. And the next minute, they are producing the research which is going to influence politicians and policy. I think I can guess that if we dig in not too deeply, we're going to find the pharmaceutical industry heavily embedded in this so-called independent research group. What do you think? I think you used uh, specifically one word there, Brian, which was very important, which was influence. And clearly, we have a lot of influencing going on. Um, I was just shocked and surprised that it had been going on since 1985 and probably before that. I'd like to know if Bill Gates has got his fingers in that pie as well. But um, no, I was, I'm, 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 I'm shocked. And, and, you know, like, like all our viewers are going to be saying, I'm sure in the chat box is, you know, how old are we? Four, five years old? I mean, life sciences, this is what it's all about. Life sciences. Yeah. Well, we just finished this little segment um, quickly. If I use their services to try and go and look at the risk of vaccinations on the basis we now know a great many people have been harmed or have died as a result of vaccines, of course, you can't really find anything. You just come out with uh, COVID-19 vaccine misinformation. This is the big risk. And what do they do? Well, then they start to reflect back all of the quotes and accusations that the government has made itself. 
about anybody daring to challenge the accuracy of their vaccine information. So widespread misinformation about COVID-19 vaccines has included false claims about their safety, efficacy, ingredients, side effects and purpose. Even in that first statement, they themselves do no investigation into people who've clearly been harmed. And so it goes on. Uh, we just bring this one up. Uh, what are the types and sources of COVID-19 vaccine misinformation? False claims that the COVID vaccination contains microchips that can be used to track and control people. False claims that the vaccine causes infertility or death. False claims that the vaccine will alter human DNA. And false claims that the pharmaceutical industry has fabricated the results of vaccine trials or covered up harmful side effects to boost its profits. Uh, Debbie, it's bizarre, isn't it? But the denial is actually leading to the truth because what they deny points you exactly as to what is actually happening. Yeah, exactly. And we, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that is precisely it. And as you know, um, many of your viewers, uh, many of our viewers and listeners will have already seen our interview with Headley Reese, Molecule to Man. And we've also recently done an interview with experts, clearly saying that all that you just were highlighting there is incorrect. So, yeah. I mean, what more can I say? Well, let's just, uh, I thought, as always, we just have a little look at who the people were behind this, because uh, a couple of the articles that I looked at did at least have a name uh, better than the BBC, which is largely anonymous now. So we've got Lorna Christie, and you can see that she's got very much a uh, university background. And then she comes in as a physical sciences and IT advisor. So um, I'm sure she's a lovely person, but we say, how independent is she of the university system that's promoting pharmaceutical products? We don't know. And if I come in on this lady, Sarah Bunn, this one was interesting because um, we've got an article on monitoring COVID-19 vaccine safety in national immunisation and pro uh, programmes. This is all, of course, the official line on how safe it is. But I did manage to find a little bit more detail on this Yakult Science for Health site, uh, which has got an interview with this lady and she's giving her background and how wonderful it is to be working for the for the government. But of course, what you do not see is any really independent research, which is leading people to be able to look at what the real risks are. But uh, we'll move on to, to your material here, because uh, really you've got some slides reinforcing the fact that we simply do not know what the long-term effects of these vaccinations are going to be. No, exactly. Um, but you know what? We're all in the business of reframing, aren't we? We're all into the business of influencing. So what I'm seeing is the government managing and the scientists or pseudoscientists, as I call them, the experts, reframing and turning things around to suit themselves. And it's no different when it comes to serious adverse reactions, because now they're actually saying that if you've had an adverse reaction, don't worry that actually it means that your immune system is working well. So they're now trying to reframe. Um, you'll see there, there's been a, a COVID-19 vaccine study. This was a JAMA paper. This article's from CNN, but this is a JAMA study. Um, I've highlighted a bit there on, on the, in red, um, if you want to freeze the screen and read it. But um, worryingly, as you'll see there, it says there is more to reassure people who have had a reaction 
that their immune systems responding actually in a rather good way to the vaccine, even though it has caused them some discomfort, Schaffner said. So clearly what we're looking here is we're going to change, change the narrative. And if you've had a serious adverse reaction, then maybe don't worry because it probably means that your immune system is working better. And I would like to say that is not the case um, as evidence will show. But you know what, the day that Liz Trust uh, resigned, there was a, a, a protest outside the MHRA. And I would really like to thank Robert who sent this in to us to alert us of the fact that whilst all of this was going on and we were looking at Downing Street, outside the MHRA, Piers Corbyn and the Yellow Boards had organised a protest. So really, really great work there. Um, and we're also looking at more news that's coming out, very worrying news that's coming out of the MHRA. Now, the Daily Mail released what they called an exclusive article, which would indicate that like the CDC just seemed to have approved vaccines for babies, it looks like the MHRA are going the same way in this country. So this is a warning alert for all parents to keep an eye out now very closely on their baby's immunisation schedule. They say that this isn't going to be rolled out to, um, to the masses and that babies will, at the age of six months, if they're deemed to be vulnerable, by Christmas 2022, may be offered the Moderna shot. So I really want to highlight this because this is extremely dangerous. Babies do not need um, injections. Most children have had, in inverted commas, COVID, although we know it hasn't actually been isolated. So before everybody writes in to complain to me to say it hasn't been isolated, I realise that, but those are the facts. Um, so, of course, with that news in mind, I immediately wrote to the MHRA um, and I wrote to Dame June Rain with a freedom of information that you can see there on the left asking her to clarify the MHRA's position with regards to um, this, this alleged um, inclusion of the vaccine for babies of six months. I've actually received not one but two acknowledgements from the MHRA that you can see one of them on the right there. So I'm waiting to hear, but watch this space because I'm really um, very concerned about this, especially if it gets slipped into the schedule. I know Dr. Ros Jones is very hot on this as well, paediatrician who we've also um, interviewed. But you know what, despite that, the NHS is just going, ramping it up, and now saying we've had 10 million people take up on the booster shots, roll up, roll up, come for your vaccine, and not just your COVID vaccine, but your flu vaccine, because of course we're expecting a twindemic, or are we? We'll come to that in a minute. But according to the NHS there, we're expecting a twindemic, so please, will you go and get your COVID and flu shot uh, shots immediately? Very, very worrying. We do not need any boosters. Thank you. Um, meanwhile, as you will all remember, I've been um, championing the cause to take away and remove molnupiravir, very, very dangerous antiviral uh, manufactured by Merck. It's been, um, it was literally thrown out at the first clinical studies and the FDA um, well, Merck managed to get approval for it. They should never have got approval for it. Molnupiravir was rolled out in the UK first. The panoramic study was set up because there were so many serious adverse reactions. Pregnant women were um, absolutely told not to take Molnupiravir. It's one of these drugs to keep you out of hospital. 
So if you tested positive for COVID, you would get a course of molnupiravir, 500 quid a course. Now it's been stopped. It is completely ineffective. So anybody that's been receiving molnupiravir should be aware of this, that it has been deemed ineffective and the panoramic study has stopped. So that's quite a big piece of news. Um, also, the MHRA, you can sign up for a drug safety update from the MHRA. And this was the, uh, this week's drug safety update. And you can see that we've got a med safety week coming up, 7th to 13th of November, where the MHRA want to talk to health professionals, with especially about the importance of reading patient information leaflets to the patient. Well, this is going to be very interesting because I'm not quite sure that we've actually seen a, a, a hard copy of the patient information leaflet that you're normally told to go and get it online. So um, I'm quite concerned about that. Also, I'm quite concerned about the fact that in a hyperlink in the data that I received, it would appear that Moderna, the storage facilities have been changed for the Moderna spike facts. Now we know that mRNA was meant to be stored at minus 70, although having spoken very recently to Headley Reese, we now know that not to be true. But here, the MHRA is saying that they're updating the shelf life and storage instructions for spike, spike vaccine COVID-19 vaccine Moderna to allow the vaccine to be stored to the range of minus 50 to minus 15. Well, this is huge. So I'll be very interested to hear Headley's uh, take on, on what he thinks of that, because this is absolutely in in no way should this be happening also Debbie, the mhra sorry Debbie, Brian, just just to come in there i think it would be good to explain to our audience today that um Head, headley who's got extensive experience in the supply chain industry for pharmaceutical products and vaccines and what he has said is that the actual storage temperature of these uh, of these types of products is absolutely critical because if they are not continually held at the right storage temperatures, then what happens is you get a, a breakdown or a separation of the um, constituent ingredients. And this can dramatically affect the um, efficacy of, of the pharmaceutical product. It could even in some circumstances is make it dangerous. And uh, part of his warning was that if we look at the supply chain around the rush to get the COVID-19 vaccines out, that many of the safety requirements of uh, the nature of storage, the volume of uh, vaccine stored and the temperatures, all of this was thrown to one side. Yeah, exactly. Everything, everything has been stopped. You know, everything, all the safety checks that should have taken place from the minute that this was cooked up in a chemical kitchen, so the second it arrives to your doctor's surgery or to your pharmacist or into your arm, there should be really stringent tests, good manufacturing practice and the good manufacturing guide. And Headley Reese has highlighted an awful lot of problems, huge red flags where safety has literally gone out of the window. So this is a very important little hyperlink about changing the storage there. And these are the things they don't want us to know that we should be keeping a very close eye on. So I can reassure everybody that I have sent that link to Headley uh, Reese, and I'm going to wait and see what he says, but I can only imagine it isn't going to be good. Let's move on then to the triple demic. 
Yep, twindemic's gone out of the window and now we're heading, or at least the USA, this is a report on the mail um, from the USA saying that they're extremely worried because they've got a huge rise in respiratory syntissial virus or RSV as we, as we know it. So the combination of RSV and COVID and flu is causing a huge problem where they've got 71% of their beds full. They've never seen anything like it. Um, and that they're doing these huge rise in tests, PCR tests, would you believe? Nasal swabs, six inch sticks into babies' noses, into people's noses to test for RSV. I'm not even going to start to get into why we know that these PCR tests are inaccurate. But what I will say is that I'm extremely concerned because RSV can cause bronchiolitis. Now, my children, when they were babies, had bronchiolitis. All my children had RSV. I would sit in the bathroom with the shower on, lots of steam. If sometimes they would need a, a bit of help, antibiotics or steroids or whatever. But generally, this is a, a condition that most children have had by the time they're, they're two. If you're adult, then there's very good therapeutic measures for RSV. And yet clearly, you know what I'm gonna say, don't you? There's an mRNA vaccine on the way, and that's just it, there is. So we've got Moderna about to roll out an mRNA jab for RSV, and we've also got GlaxoSmithKline in the running as well. So, you know, just the fact that these jabs are now being uh, produced and they're in the pipeline suggests that what we've said all along is mRNA is here to stay. Um, and, and not only that, I just wanted to highlight to uh, uh, an article that I'd seen with regards to MHRA funding in that the MHRA and NICE have been given a nice fat 1.8 million pounds to investigate and to work out the regulation that they might want to use for digital mental health tools. I mean, this is absolutely terrifying. We know what the MHRA are like with medical devices. They tell us they're not a regulator. And yet now NICE and the MHRA have been given 1.8 million from the Welcome Trust of all places to decide what might be a digital mental health tool. And we know that some of them get embedded into the head and into the brain. So the fact that they don't even know what a mental health digital tool is yet is very concerning, but we can expect to see the rollout of many of these uh, with regards to mental health and we know that mental health cases are going to soar so this is a story to watch because the i don't trust nice or the mhra or welcome so for me it's another twindemic of three very very worrying organizations in collaboration with each other okay debbie thank you very much for that well we'll end with a big thank you to one of our uh, viewers um, who is really reinforcing what you've been talking to us about over many months and that is the NHS going vir virtual. Let's have a look at this email that we received. Good morning Brian. First of all thank you for what you're all doing at the UK column. This is probably an issue that Debbie Evans has been looking at uh, but I'm not sure she's seen, uh, seen that they've listed jobs in the Stoke-on-Trent area. They're looking for virtual ward staff and if we just bring this one in, um, here we are, virtual ward, modern matron, uh, salary of 48,526 uh, to 54,619 a year. The job is full-time remote. 
and I followed um, this email up. So I went back to the source advert here. Here's the virtual ward. And what this is doing is saying we're going to be caring, apparently, for critically ill people in their own home. That forms the virtual ward. And uh, we've now got staff who are going to be monitoring those staff remotely, presumably with some visits. But of course, Debbie, what, what you specifically highlighted is that the NHS is talking more and more about its ability to use AI and remote monitoring systems to keep an eye on patients who are left in their own homes. Yeah, biosensors, that's what we're looking at is Fitbits and they're going to remotely link you up even to the point where if you've had to have a procedure or surgery, you're going to be literally discharged almost while you're asleep and you're going to be monitored at home. But one interesting thing that I do just want to say is that I know of a GP, um, a very experienced, highly qualified GP who has applied to every single NHS uh, GP trust in pretty much the local, well, in the southwest vicinity, should I say, and he's been refused a job because he doesn't follow the government narrative and because he's aware of what's going on and he's been refused work. This is a very, very experienced NHS senior doctor and yet we're advertising for remote staff to work remotely. It's, uh, well, we've been warning about it for a long time and there's more of it to come, I'm afraid. This is just the start. Yeah, and Debbie, just very, very briefly, I mean, uh, the implications of this are horrendous. When people are already struggling to uh, afford energy costs, uh, you then shove a whole bunch of diagnostic equipment into somebody's home and expect them to be rehabilitated in their home rather than in the hospital when they're critically ill. Uh, these, this type of equipment is monitoring 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is going to put energy costs for the homeowner through the roof. When in fact it would have been the NHS who was paying for that uh, if if the person had been treated in a hospital. Yeah, and I've I've heard um, from a number of sources that this whole program is not going to be affordable. They what they need is some very very experienced community nurses in order to manage it, and they just don't have community nurses in in um, those quantities to be able to manage it. And patients won't be able to manage these pieces of equipment. They go wrong they fail, they're inaccurate. So it's never going to work. But you know what, Mike, it just brings me back to a question you asked me last week, because it set me thinking about the fall service where we're going to leave people at home. If they've had a fall, there's going to be a special uh, a crew sent round if you've had to hit your panic button and you've fallen. And you said to me, what happens to these people? And I've spoken to a number of nurses and what they're saying is if somebody elderly falls at home, they're put in a brace, given morphine and kept at home. It's that simple. They're not taken to hospital. Nobody's going to be taken to hospital anymore. People are going to end up with so much medical equipment that has to be linked up to the internet and to the cloud and to whoever. They're not going to be able to manage it. These are sick people often. It's ridiculous. It won't work. Well, it's not designed to work, is it? Ultimately, it's designed to cause people further suffering. That's the real tragedy. OK, well, Debbie, let's just end with a couple of uh, memes. Yes, I thought uh, the panopticon that we all seem to be living in. Um, I'll let you read them out, gentlemen, because I think they're self-explanatory, but I thought they were particularly pertinent, especially given the metaverse as well. On the left, uh, we have a cartoon with a man in a T-shirt, Mickey Mouse T-shirt. Uh, he's looking into his virtual 
reality goggles and underneath it says the best way to keep a prisoner from escaping is to make sure he never knows he's in prison uh, which seems pretty accurate and on the right we've got a little statement it says it says you must be willing to truly consider evidence that contradicts your beliefs and admit the possibility that you may be wrong intelligence isn't knowing everything it's the ability to challenge everything you know mm. so thank you very much for that and uh, yeah i think there's some things to reflect on there uh, look we can't uh, do an extra today so apologies for that so we will be back at 1 p.m on friday yeah thank you all very much for joining us and thank you so much for everybody who's been a long-term supporter of the uk column um, your effort has made a, a big difference to how we do things and we've got uh, more good news coming up in the future. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.